Wendell Stevens. Who? The silent, silent partner. He's the guilty one, Your Honor, the man with the bank accounts. That's where the filtering process starts. They trace anything. It's just going to lead to him. But who is he? He's a phantom, an apparition. Second cousin to Harvey the Rabbit. I conjured him out of thin air. He doesn't exist, except on paper. Andy, you can't just make a person up. I'm sure you can. If you know how the system works, where the cracks are. It's amazing what you can accomplish by mail. Mr. Stevens has a birth certificate, driver's license, social security number. You're shitting me. If they ever trace any of those accounts, they're going to wind up chasing a figment of my imagination. Well, I'll be damned. Wow, the things you could accomplish before the internet. Although I wonder if it's in if it's possible now to make a person up just by using the mail. Hmm. Cinema Psych does not condone this kind of behavior. Psych Podcast, the podcast where psychology meets film. I'm your host, as always, Dr. Alex Swan. And in today's episode, we are going to explore one of the top movies of just film in general. Uh, I, I would I would definitely be okay with going toe-to-toe with somebody on that one. Uh, This is definitely in my top 10. That film is the classic, recent classic, but I'm sure it'll be on the level of Casablanca as as we go along. That film, today's episode, is gonna be about the Shawshank Redemption. Yep, that film, that Shawshank Redemption, came out in 1994 based on the short story novella, as he liked to call them, um, Stephen King, of course, the uh, novella Rita Hayworth and Shawshank Redemption. So it's based on that little story. And it's kind of funny. I heard on the uh, on, a, on another podcast the other day that I was listening to it, and we we're talking about the Shawshank Redemption and the uh, just Stephen King in general and how his novellas seem to do much better than his full novels uh, in movies. Like, you can think about maybe The Shining notwithstanding, but most of his novellas do better than his full-on novels, which is actually kind of interesting because there was a really good novel that I liked, The Cell, uh, and and apparently they made a movie, you know, about five or six years ago, and uh, it wasn't... Apparently it wasn't good. I haven't seen it, but apparently it wasn't good. But enough about uh, Stephen King. This film, The Shawshank Redemption, was adapted for the screen by Frank Darabont. He also directed it, and a stellar directed movie 
from start to finish. I don't care if you think that two hours and 20 minutes is too long. The pacing is wonderful in this movie. It goes seamlessly from one scene to the next. And the ones that are slow and drawn out tend to be the more poignant scenes. And that's what I like. There's no unnecessary slow-mo that extends films that are made by Zack Snyder, for example. There's no, there's, there's none of that. It's just pure, raw uh, human emotion and triumphing, oh, triumphing over uh, I mean, the ultimate adversity, I guess, going to prison for something that you didn't do, even though you think thought about it you know it's uh it's an interesting uh it's an interesting philosophical argument of course uh tim robbins is the lead he is the uh person that gets the redemption uh from shawshank prison i'm gonna have a problem with shawshank this episode i think to say too fast it's not it's not gonna work anyways he plays the title the lead character excuse me uh andy dufresne uh before i heard how this last name was said when i first watched this movie i always thought it was defresne but that's on me it's andy dufresne uh morgan freeman plays red Redding, Ellis Boyd Red Redding is his full name, but he plays the character Red, who is the long-term sage of Shawshank, and he um he gets his own redemption too, which is actually kind of a, a lovelier story, considering one of the topics that we're gonna talk up talk about today is institutionalization and just how that changes you socially. Uh Bob Gunton. Wonderful character actor plays the warden, the I want to I guess I'll say the villain of the film. And so, yeah. Oh, but also one of my two favorite characters in this movie is just a Clancy Brown special as Captain Hadley. And then William Sadler as the ne'er do well uh, Haywood character who plays Haywood. And then a lot of um, names or people that you've seen throughout the world, throughout film, make appearances, that sort of thing. Um, but really, the story focuses on Andy Dufresne and Red and uh, the all of the people around them. And uh, just spoiler alert, if you have not seen the movie, you can pause this pause this podcast episode now. Go watch the movie. It's on HBO. I think it'll be on HBO for a while. It's on HBO or HBO Max. I don't know. Go get one of those things. If you have one, then you definitely have the other. It's one of those things that Warner is doing. But in any case, if you have not seen it, go see it now. It is a wonderful movie. Take my word for it if you have not seen it. Stop this now. Because spoiler alert. So Andy Dufresne breaks out of Shawshank Prison. Um, because the reason why I'm saying spoiler alert, because it kind of looks like he's going to kill himself. But he does, you know, it's... It's obviously a, a, a fake out. Um, 
and the rest of the characters don't know this is Andy's whole thing escaping uh, Shawshank prison and um, taking all of the uh, money laundered money uh, with him basically and and he create he had created a, a whole new identity uh, with which I is assume is something that you can't do today but it's really intriguing whether or not you could create a fake person I don't think you can but hey the 1940s and 1950s were a different world, I suppose. Uh, the film does span a lot of generations. Uh, well, I should say decades, not generations. Maybe a couple generations going from the post-war period to the uh, uh, mid-1960s. So, yeah, it's like I said, it's a really good one. And I'm going to stop blabbing now because I really want to get into this one. The first episode of our third year doing this podcast. I love it. My guest host today is a previous guest host. Please welcome back to the show, Dr. Justine Egan Kanicki. It has certainly been a while since you've been on the show, Justine. So, and and, and if any viewer or listener wants to go back and, and see your first appearance, we talked about Zootopia, which occurred in the before times, like just before that episode came out in January 2020. So who knew a different world? Welcome back to the show, Justine. Thanks so much, Alex. Yeah, it is feels like the long, long time ago, right? Like it's kind of crazy how Yeah. It's so how is your how has your teaching been since then? Yeah. I mean, the world, you know, as we all know, changed so much. And I feel like now sitting back, you know, a year and a half plus later, and I'm really thinking about the mm. lessons we've learned, right? As faculty, as students and you know, I've gotten the opportunity through this past year and a half. So just for context, my institution remained primarily virtual, especially for psychology courses. And so I have not been back in my in the classroom since March 2020, (laughs) um, which is wow. Wow. Okay. So last year, I was in the classroom. So that's, that's a completely different thing. And I know that it's that's my um, experience was different from many of our colleagues and uh, to to hear that it was different from you and that you haven't been back in the classroom since then it's it's got to be uh it's got to be a weird sensation uh set of emotions i would imagine having to go back in a couple of weeks yeah it's you know prior to that it was definitely feelings of loss but also feelings mm-hmm. of like you know, I feel like I I tried out a new a lot of new technology in the classroom. I, you know, all these different ways to engage with my students. I had to think outside of the box, like many of us, and I was thankful for that because I feel as though the lessons I got from that I'm going to take with me into this fall mm-hmm. semester, which yeah, you know, is nerve wracking and exciting at the same time. Yeah, I I totally agree. Even though I'm just going back to what I did. Yeah. <laughs> Essentially, I'm sure there's going to be some hybrid students, some remote students for me. But I, I get what you're saying because it it allowed us to find some silver linings here. It allowed us to get a little bit more creative. Um, I just saw a post on Reddit, somebody uh, in the uh, our professors subreddit, somebody saying that they've been teaching for for 10 years and, and they feel a little down at the bottom. And of course, that's going to be 
reasonable in these times, you know, with the pandemic still looming very large and all of that. But I mean, hopefully it's allowed us to get a little bit more creative. Like I said, got to find the silver lining in there somewhere. Yeah. Okay, Justine, let's let's pivot to this film because I know we have a lot of fun stuff to talk about. And of course, in a two hour and 20 minute video uh, movie, there's going to be definitely a lot of psych to cover, especially since it's a movie about people. And you know what people have? They have psychology. So you jumped in. Uh, when I asked if you wanted to be on the show again and was like Shawshank Redemption, I'm like, okay, you know what? That's a great film. So uh, let the listeners know why you were so quick on Shawshank. So it is literally my most favorite movie of like all time. Um, there is a wow. Yeah. Like, I mean, yeah. And Probably it's that and The Princess Bride is my two top favorite movies. (laughs) I love the combo. Yeah, they're they're very different. But, um, you know, it's one of the top 100 movies listed on IMDb. It's like above The Godfather. I was looking it up recently. It's but really, I think what I love about this film from like a psychology lens is that the film's themes of like friendship and hope are something that transcend time. Even though this film is again, close to 30 years since it's release, it's been 27 years. And, you know, I think there's just an important message in terms of how we develop our friendships, how we connect to other people in times of struggle. And it also just has really great acting by Tim Robbins and Morgan Freeman as the kind of two primary roles. And if you have listened, you know, haven't listened to the soundtrack, that's also really great. So especially the uh, opera in the middle of the yes. film that everyone gets to hear. Yes. It, um, great, uh, great uh, insertion there by by Frank Darabont, for sure. Yes. Um, so have you used the film in, in teaching at all? So I haven't used this particular film in courses that I teach yet. Um, but if I, you mm-hmm. know, if I wanted to incorporate this, I think there's just so many places where it could be incorporated and it actually got my wheels turning a bit of how I would do this. And for example, an intro psych, which is one of the courses I teach, I think about the stress and health chapter where we're discussing how do we cope in times of difficulty. And, you know, I think about which we'll get to, but, you know, how Andy held on to parts of his identity, his himself, his person, his humanity, despite the, yeah. the dim circumstances he was in um, and the types of coping he kind of implemented during that process. Um Social psych is another course I teach. And I think friendship development, you know, that's a whole portion of when we talk about attraction. So I think there's definitely pieces with him and Red that are just so beautiful that I think could easily Mm -hmm. be highlighted there. And I know we'll get more in depth with it within our talk here. Uh, And then within theories of personalities, you know, or as positive psych course, we could talk about like humanistic theories and connect that to how, you know, uh, positive psychology came out of that area, but specifically mm-hmm. those constructs of hope and resilience and how do we overcome and adversity and struggle. 
Yeah, and I want to remind the listeners here at this moment that you are a uh, trained social psychologist, as we discussed back in the Zootopia episode. I know the the intro for returning guests is a little less like who is this person, yeah. but yeah, you are a you are a trained um, social psychologist, and so you get those aspects thrown into intro, thrown into social, all of those, yeah, and a lot of the themes that we are going to talk about, and a lot of the psych concepts we are going to talk about are going to be coming from um, social psych theories and things like that. So, yeah. Uh, and and there was one last thing that you had mentioned uh, in our notes yeah. regarding choosing Shawshank here. Yeah, I just always think it's important to note, like, any movies from the, like, the 90s or even, like, early 2000s, I, I think that that was, like, a really, you know, when we look back at these types of films, you know, we really need to look at it critically in terms of things like representation. I think that's something we have more of an eye towards today that, you know, back then that wasn't really the same type of conversation. And so, you know, even though in terms of the film, right, so main 19, late 1930s, 40s, 50s, you know, of course, it was probably more predominantly white in terms of the prison population. That being yeah. said, when we look at the prison population today, you know, it has disproportionately impacted communities of color. And so we can think about right. the 70s and 80s with the war on drugs. And so, again, after this movie in terms of the timeline, so it makes sense. But Morgan Freeman's character is still one of the only men of color. There's like one other male man of color, um, man of color throughout the film. Um, and so right. that isn't necessarily indicative of that entire population, I would imagine, even at that time. And so just keeping in mind, like in terms of casting and, you know, that sort of thing um, that we've kind of made strides towards today. And so that that's, you know, I wouldn't say a criticism, just something to think about in terms of how we kind of yeah. view the film. Right. I I agree um, with the whole thing. I, I don't know if Stephen King really knew or Frank Darabont really knew what the prison population was like in in those uh, decades. But uh, I do agree that there could probably could have been more sprinkled throughout. I think there was one one or two other um, uh, African-American gentlemen. One has a, an additional speaking line. One get another one gets named because he gets handed a piece of mail. <laughs> but that's about it. Other than that, it's Morgan Freeman. Yeah. Um, carrying everything on his back as he <laughs> tends to do in many of yes. his films. Right. Exactly. So let's jump into the psych here. And um, one of the things that I, I, I think that our audience will uh, like uh, for us to do is talk broadly and thematically because there is so much movie here and that all of the concepts seem really seem to intertwine like you can go from one thing to the next and I think I think that's a wonderful aspect of the film I I mentioned in the uh the intro before we started talking that the film is two hours and 20 minutes and that's like the third time I've said that it is a long movie I get that some people don't like watching movies that long but its pacing is so good, and that really is because all of the scenes sort of mend and and meld together in my mind. Having just rewatched it um, for I don't know the umpteenth time today, um, I will agree with you. I said in the I said in the intro that it is one of my top tens, and I will fight anybody who <laughs> wants to disagree with me on that one because of this, that, or the other thing. I don't I don't agree. I don't agree if you think it's not top ten 
quality. Um, so the first thing that I think we can talk about is the thing that looms large. It's the giant elephant in the room, which is prison itself. Right. And this idea of incarceration, what it means to be free. And uh, in your notes, uh, Justine, you had mentioned um, the psychological versus physical freedom that people have. So to give some background to people who are like, ah, spoiler schmoilers, uh, Andy Dufresne is a banker in, from Portland, Maine, the uh, Portland from the other side of the country. Um, and he catches his wife um, having an extramarital affair with uh, a young man. Um, and he has a gun and is drinking in his car. He has a gun and bullets. And um, he is convicted. We don't see any action. We don't see see anything happen. But Andy Dufresne is convicted of uh, two first-degree murders and is given two back-to-back -back life sentences. So he's going to spend the rest of his life in prison in Maine, and he is he is sent to what I what I believe is a maximum security prison um, right. called Shawshank, um, Shawshank Prison in the state of Maine because murder is a state crime, and so he would go to state prison. So that's where he went, and uh, the rest of the movie sort of goes on from there, from his first day in prison to the last time we see him leaving the prison, escaping. But after that, the prologue, or the epilogue, I should say, uh, where um, Red gets out of prison, he is finally granted parole, and he gets out of prison, and he, and he follows directions that Andy gave him to a stone stone wall near a tree that um andy and his uh, andy proposed to this wife that was murdered um to what give him money and a bunch of stuff i believe yeah yeah which i think is really cool um from a friend's standpoint but let's go back to the whole prison thing i, I gave, gave the plot of the movie <laughs> let's go back to the prison thing <clears throat> excuse me i'm going through puberty here let's go back <laughs> to the prison so Andy, Red, everyone else is in prison. They are physically incarcerated in a prison. But, Justine, what's the psychological freedom aspect that you brought up? Yeah, so I think in this case where Andy, throughout the film, and, and at various points that we can note, but that he really tries to kind of hold on to his humanity and his sense of like that there's a world outside of these walls. And he even says that at one point um, where, you know, after he had played the opera music and was put into solitary, like that he, he held yeah. on to this, that there's more to life than these walls. And that if I basically, he says to red and red gets upset with him, you know, if I don't hold on to this, what's the point essentially. And that is a very big component of Andy throughout the entire film of, of his character is that in, you know, so an example, you know, the first example that I have here in my notes is, you know, there's this scene where the inmates are given an option to tar a, a roof of a plate factory. Um, and it's an opportunity because it's outside work. 
And they say, well, that Mm -hmm. would be really great. It's May. We want outside work. And Mm -hmm. they get the job. Andy's on the crew with Red and some other folks who are part of his crew. And throughout this scene, Andy gets on the right side of the guards, this guard being Hadley, um, the head Mm -hmm. guard. And he gets on his right side and eventually obtains beer for the crew to drink Mm -hmm. on them, on this tarring, this uh, roof. And they are drinking the beer. They're enjoying it. And Andy doesn't actually drink with them. He sits there and he smiles. And, you know, Red theorizes. We don't actually know what's going on in Andy's head. We don't, we don't, we can only assume based on Red's kind of, you know, uh, thought process there that Andy is doing this because he wants to feel normal again. He wants to feel human again. He wants to feel like he's sitting on the roof of his house with his friends having a, you know, they're having a beer and he's just enjoying the sunshine and, and seeing their, his friends being there. And so I think again, at different points throughout the film, Andy really holds on to this piece of what is freedom in his head and how does he retain this sense of what the outside world means and that he doesn't lose sight of that. And that's how it came to pass that on the second to last day of the job, the convict crew that tarred the plate factory roof in the spring of 49 wound up sitting in a row at 10 o'clock in the morning, drinking icy cold Bohemia style beer courtesy of the hardest screw that ever walked a turn at Shawshank State Prison. Drink up while it's cold, ladies. The colossal prick even managed to sound magnanimous. We sat and drank with the sun on our shoulders and felt like free men. Hell, we could have been tarring the roof of one of our own houses. We were the lords of all creation. As for Andy, He spent that break hunkered in the shade, a strange little smile on his face, watching us drink his beer. Hey, want a cold one, Andy? No, thanks. Gave up drinking. You could argue he'd done it to curry favor with the guards, or maybe make a few friends among us cons. Me, I think he did it just to feel normal again. If only for a short while. Uh, I, I love that. Uh, I love the, the juxtaposition there between psychological versus... So he's physically captive. Yes. But psychologically, he holds on to the things that make him who he is. So he does banking stuff for the guard because he knows that once he starts getting on people's good sides then he can have more freedom within the confines of that so he again gets to um do the library with brooks before brooks gets paroled he then gets he, he starts you know he gets the freedom to write letters to the legislature the governor's office um for funds for expanding the library and books and uh, he eventually gets that. Like, he, I don't think any prison ever could say, no, you can't do mail because, you know, mail's a two way street. But um, he was granted permission to just badger the hell out of uh, the elected officials. He gets to work in the warden's office and he gets special treatment for working in the warden's office. And so he yeah, he gets he gets these incremental uh things that allow him to be him the first thing he asks red 
for is a rock pick um, because he wants to whittle away at rocks, uh, which I think is really cool. And it turns out he ends up using it for another purpose, which is amazing, which is truly, truly amazing. But to, to, to do all that, it took him 19 years to do all that. But you know what? So good. Uh, and and you were saying the the other thing that you had mentioned was um, when they he comes out of solitary and he had been th- he had gotten solitary for uh, playing the music. But then he gets solitary another time when um, he refuses to let the truth of his wife and her her um, lovers murders get out because the warden villain of the movie doesn't want him to leave the whole money laundering gig that he's doing so well little does he know that he is um taking the money for himself exactly (laughs) oh the warden he got his comeuppance that's for sure uh (laughs) hopefully yeah but they i have to say to, to the credit end of the film too they make warden norton into a really good villain um whereas um, I actually read Stephen King's novella this summer because I had never read it based off. Mm. So Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. And I won't spend too much time here because I know we're talking about the film. But what I thought was interesting is that isn't the same kind of uh, it doesn't play out in the same way. And that Warden Norton is such a villain in the same exact way. And so I thought the film did a really good job of highlighting his kind of his evil um, persona and his and how he was presenting himself because you really do root for Andy and you're, you, you rejoice a little bit when reward and Norton gets his uh, um, comeuppance as you noted. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I don't know. Are you familiar with the Andy is guilty theory that's around the internet? I have not read that and I'm not surprised that's a theory out there though, but Oh my gosh, that would break my heart. <laughs> <laughs> so the so I was doing some investigating today, uh, faithful listeners. Uh, so if you're unaware, there is a group of folks who like to also analyze things. I know they're like us, but they um, the the idea here is that Andy is guilty um, for murdering his wife. Uh, yeah, his wife and her lover. Um, that evening uh, and he just doesn't realize it because he was so drunk um, and all of that. And and there are th- things that point to him throughout the movie. I think those folks are looking too far into the writing and the facial expressions and mannerisms and things that happen in the plot. Uh, the official, I, I so to speak, uh, Website, the fandom wiki on the Shawshank Redemption states that he is 100 percent innocent. Good. <laughs> so he he claims he claim and, and various other sites uh, say that, too. The I think one of the official synopses of the movie ex, um, uh, says wrongly convicted Andy Dufresne or something like that. Something that something to that effect of phrasing, you know, wrongly convicted or innocent man, whatever. Uh, So it is clear that I think after on my rewatch, because I was reading that stuff before. And so I started looking for those uh, nuggets. And I don't really think I find I think I think the movie is fairly clear in saying that Andy is 
innocent and um, the redemption is his, you know, the titular redemption. But I think also you can apply redemption to Red as well because Red becomes less cynical Yeah. Uh, at the end. Agreed. And I think too- Which is pretty cool. Yeah, and Red gets also like a more- like he gets a more realistic understanding of like, like when he goes to the parole board at the end. Right. And he's like, you know, Sonny, I don't give a damn. Like <laughs> where he's just, he realizes like, this is, I have to say what you needed me to say, but I don't care anymore. Like, this is what I, you know, I deserve to be free and this is, and you know, he gets it. But I think that, yeah, I think Red's story is a different type of story of redemption, but I agree. Mm-hmm. It's the same kind of idea. And before we move on from the prison theme, the um, going back to the roof scene for a sec, um, I thought it was a really good juxtaposition of the psychological freedom that you were uh, referring to earlier, too, because um, he says he doesn't drink anymore um, when he when um, Haywood um, offers him a beer. And I think. He hasn't had a drink since that night uh, that he found or that he was arrested for um, those murders. So I think that was one of the things that was incarcerating his mind was the drinking. And, and, and you, don't, you don't hear that a lot. I mean, the phrasing is, is awkward phrasing for anybody who is dealing with alcohol use disorder. But it, it, can, be a, it can be a refrain. And I've heard it before from real people who are struggling with um, alcohol. And uh, it it was, I thought that was an interesting one, one liner, very small blink and you miss it. Uh, And it, it it sort of encapsulates Andy's whole journey in my mind. Yeah. I, I hear your point. And I think especially the, not just the point that he, it's like a choice for him in that case, like, and he's forced to stop drinking, right? Because he's in prison, but to an extent, right? Because then again, we know alcohol is, you know, can be available in various ways in prison settings. And so I think, you know, that might also have been like a, a sense of freedom for him, right? And we also don't know to what extent his alcohol use was prior to that incident, right? So that could have been him being upset of finding his wife having this affair and, or it wasn't more something more than that. We don't really fully get that information in the film um but Mm -hmm. i but i like that kind of comparison point that i didn't think about yeah you have that one now and that actually leads us into what you know how these characters think about themselves so this idea of of self-concept and it's not only andy that we can talk about here but it's red and it's the other uh inmates uh especially uh uh what a specific inmate, Brooks, the older man who, um, who we'll talk about in just a minute. But I did want to mention uh, very briefly that uh, Justine, you'd mentioned that um, Red was the narrator and he was he's narrating it and, and he does. And this is one of the uh, first films that like Morgan Freeman gets to use his narrating chops. And then everybody's like, oh, my God, Morgan Freeman's voice. 
and then it's you know the rest is history from there pretty much everyone um, wanted morgan freeman to narrate everything from then on for quite some time <laughs> exactly exactly um and i think he's just reached the age where he's just like nah i'm not gonna do that anymore and it's like no but we love your buttery voice <laughs> um but uh, I, I do want to characterize uh, Red as an unreliable narrator. Yeah. Uh, be, so not everything that we are seeing or we are looking at is technically true from the situation of the narrative because Red is a, a cast as a character within that narrative. And so what he knows and what he sees and what he does is... Um, to be taken with a slight more, and that's why this whole theory of of Andy being guilty can live because Red is an unreliable narrator. But we still get a conception of who he thinks of himself, right? We still, because he, he talks about himself in his narration. Not only does he talk about Andy, he talks about himself, which is, um, which is great. So what are the self-concepts that we see in, in the film, Justine? Yeah, so with, I mean, with Red, the, you know, he has this whole scene where he describes what it means to be institutionalized. Don't you knock it off? Brooks ain't no bug. It's just, it's just institutionalized. Institutionalized my ass. The man's been in here 50 years, Hayward. 50 years. This is all he knows. In here, he's an important man. He's an educated man. Outside, he's nothing. Just a used-up con with arthritis in both hands. Probably couldn't get a library card if you tried. You know what I'm trying to say? Fred, I do believe you're talking out of your ass. You believe whatever you want, Floyd. But I'm telling you, these walls are funny. First, you hate them. And you get used to them. Enough time passes, you get so you depend on them. That's institutionalized. Red's description of an institutionalized man really connects to Brooks, this character of Brooks. And Brooks, you know, is a inmate who was there for 50 years and yeah. then gets paroled after 50 years in the institution um, or in the prison and which is just, you know, that's all, that's pretty much your entire life. This man was in mm -hmm. there and he in there, you know, so red, I, I have the quote here because there's just so many great quotes in this, this film. Um, but red says, you know, he's just institutionalized and he's talking to Haywood because Haywood Brooks attacks Haywood um, because he wants to stay in the prison so badly yeah. because he, he's, he's afraid. He doesn't know what the world outside is like. He hasn't been there in 50 years and the world has changed immensely in the time. And so Red, Red tells him, you know, he's just institutionalized. The man's been in here 50 years and here in the prison. He's an important man, an educated man outside. He is nothing just a used up con. And he adds like with arthritis and, you know, and so it's, and it's really sad because Brooks does struggle to adjust on the outside due to that loss of who he is um, when he leaves the, in the prison. Yeah. I mean, he, he writes a letter his essentially his suicide note to the, uh, his friends, you know, again, men that 
he had grown to admire and grown to consider friends, saw them every day, ate with them every day. Oh, man, this this uh, the first time I saw this scene um, of Brooks uh, uh, dying by suicide was really hard because you're looking at somebody, like you said, who has spent the vast majority of their life inside that prison. And he he makes an he makes a, a mention in his note about how he once saw an automobile when he was a kid. Uh, you know, before he got sent to prison and he comes out and they're all over the place. Sure, he's seen a bus a time or two as they come in through the prison. And of course, the bus has changed significantly over time. I'm sure when he first got to Shawshank in the teens, because he said he gets um, he gets uh, there in 1905, they're coming. Other prisoners are coming in. And probably horse-drawn carriages, big old horse-drawn carriages. Uh, and then eventually they turn into buses. And he's like, yeah, okay, all right. They've, you know, I saw an automobile once. Of course, they're going to make bigger ones. You can read National Geographic or something. I don't know. Um, but then he gets out and he's seen all of these cars. Like, how did everyone get a car? Right? The one I saw when I was a kid was thousands of dollars <laughs> that's funny uh was thousands of dollars maybe hundreds of dollars i don't know what the pricing was for cars back <laughs> in the sure. day a hundred plus years ago <laughs> but he's like that's way out of everyone's price range yeah rich people get those things not every joe on the street it's 1955 yeah everyone did have a car everyone in the middle class had a car and he was just like this is mind-blowing but then of course he has to do everything else in life. He becomes a bagger at gro- at a grocery store, and um, as you mentioned, as Red mentions, you know, he you know he's got arthritis and whatnot, and he can't move very quickly, and he's having to bag groceries like some early Walmart inspiration. Oh my God, <laughs> greeters having to work at Walmart. Yeah, I mean, and my heart just you know your heart breaks for him because it's. The, when you mentioned the automobiles, like he's walking through the street in one of the scenes and a car passes him by so quickly and he's startled and he's like, the world is moving too fast for me. He says at one point in his letter, I believe. And it's, you know, and in that scene when he's bagging, you know, he's like, you're not going, you're not doing it right. His boss yelling is yelling at him and he starts to plot the ways he could go back because he, that's where, that was his home. I mean, you know, and Again, as Red said, it's those walls, they become a part, almost a part of you, that that they're almost a part of who you are because you've been in that space for so long. And so for Brooks, it's it's such it was such a part of him. And unfortunately, is, you know, that fear and, you know, I, I wrote in my notes, like, who am I if I'm not this? Right. And like it for Brooks, that's kind of the question I'm sure, he, you know, theorizing like right what well, he asked himself of like well if i'm not this what am i why am i here almost unfortunately and that's the sad part and the heartbreaking part in that yeah and um he ends up hanging himself because he he can't cope so that's a that's one of two rough deaths in this movie the other one is i don't know if we're going to be talking about tommy so i'll mention it here um, Tommy, uh, a, um, a young man who sort of gets under Andy's wing a little bit. Um, Andy helps him get his, uh, GED, but because he has information 
about the truth regarding um, Andy Dufresne's wife and her lover's murder, um, the warden finds that to be unacceptable and has Hadley shoot him in the back. And I, I mentioned this in the top two. Uh, Clancy Brown is terrifying. Oh, my gosh. As, like, he plays a lot of terrifying characters, like the uh, Gorgon or whatever his name is in um, Highlander, the uh, villain in Highlander, or any voice character he voices, really. There are very few that are, like, big and cuddly. Um, he was He's a very, very scary man in that movie. And, of course, it's it'd be the one to shoot um, Tommy, like, three or four times in the back. In the back. After the warden Norton gives him a cigarette and is like trying to, you know, and and you know, it's, you know, this is going to be bad. And it's, it's just, again, it's one of those, you know, things you're just watching. You're like, no, like, and I remember I rewatched it the other day in anticipation of our talk, of course. And I, my heart not only just broke, but I also was like, no, Andy, it's like my reaction every time, because you just know, like your Andy's fate is sealed at that point. And also, you know, the loss of Tommy who was, Andy really saw as this like demonstration of promise and like life on the outside of what Andy didn't have. It was almost like vicariously, if you think about it, like living through him of helping him achieve. He had a wife and a daughter on the outside. And and now that was life was snuffed out. And so, yeah. Yeah. And the, the, the he was only going to be in there for two years. Yeah. Because all he got was breaking and entering and, the, you know, all he got. But yeah, he was really he was only sentenced to two years uh and so he was gonna get out he was gonna get out and andy saw that um that and he knew that uh the warden murdered him because of just how the warden treated the information like you can make this your problem but i don't want it to be my problem but also i need you to keep laundering money for me so yeah, I think I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure that happens. And so as soon as uh, the warden comes to uh, tell Andy that uh, Tommy was killed trying to escape, I'm doing air quotes, um, Andy knew immediately what he had done. And he was just like, that was his moment of resolve he has to spend another month in solitary, but as he comes out, he has resolve to leave. Uh, yeah, because that's and- the tipping point for him, right? That, I mean, I'm sure that whole, you know, was dug out and like waiting almost probably for some, not maybe months and years or whatever, but for a short, you know, somewhat period of time where he probably sat there where, you know, this again, theorizing, we don't know, but we can assume that he probably waited a little bit because he was nervous. I mean, that's a big, hey, I'm going to escape from prison and this is my one chance. I do it. Yeah. This is my one chance to do this. And if I don't and I don't do it, I'm never leaving this place. And so I think that was his resolve. You know, like you said, his moment of this is it. This is I have to do this now. Yeah. And I think he got the weather report and knew that he needed because he was a smart dude. He knew that he needed um, a torrential downpour that had lightning and thunder. So it was going to be, you know, a summer thunderstorm in the Northeast. So lightning, thunder, so he could break open the sewer um, and he could get out to a rushing river that would carry all of his scents 
with it too. I don't know how bloodhounds can do it after a rain, but maybe they can, maybe they can't. I don't know, but um, it, it uh, brings out the famous scene of him celebrating. I'm I'm pantomiming it for Justine here, staring up in the rain. That famous scene, that famous clip. It's on the it's on many of the posters for sure of him just getting doused and just enjoying that freedom. It's really good. It's really good. Well, so, and the soundtrack at that point is also really epic as a side note. <laughs> yeah, that is true. And the fact that um, everyone is so confused the next morning and they're like, wait, what happened? And that's the last time you see Andy. You don't see him again. No. For the rest of the movie. Well, at the end, a little clip snippet, right? When Red sees him. Oh, yeah, that's right. But it's like yeah. Andy doesn't talk, that. though. So, you don't. it's like you see him, but he doesn't say anything. Um, right. But before we move forward, I did want to note that institutionalized man piece about Red's identity and how it's tied to him as well. Because, you know, even when Red gets out. Oh, yeah. That, yeah. I think that's just like because that scene is it's like a small scene and it's at the end of the movie. But I think it's a good one because. You know, it's not just that Red was thinking about how this applied to Brooks. It was also to himself. He was in there for 40 years and he gets out, he gets the same job as Brooks. They probably, you know, have these like same agencies and stuff that set them up with jobs. Yeah. And um, yeah, but he has to ask his you know, boss, can I can I go? Can I go to the restroom? Can I do that? And and his boss gets frustrated with him, like, stop asking me, just go. And um, and, you know, because he's so conditioned from that experience. Funny enough, that makes me think of when I have students um, from high school who will ask me that question in their first semester of college, because, again, they're conditioned from years of asking for hall passes and things. And it's a different type of conditioning, of course. But I think it's just interesting to see that kind of parallel. We're like, no, just just do your thing. (laughs) Yeah. K through 12, that prison. Right. Am I right? (laughs) Yeah, we can make that. You get to college and it's freedom. Uh, you know that you you bring up that point too and it's and it's um it's interesting because thinking back on what he's saying about brooks and him you know saying about himself it just struck me that that's why he's so vehement it's not that he is defending brooks because at haywood or somebody else is like what are you talking about that's not that's not how it goes and it's like shut up that's how it is it's because he's he's thinking about himself. I get it. Yep. It's totally wonderful. I love it. Yeah. And this topic does bring us into the the last topic that I want to hit before we go into the break, which is, um, you know, self-concept really is a piece of our self-identity, right? So it's just it's how we think about ourselves within that identity and we can come up with um, attitudes and other things like that that create the identity as a whole. And so, Justine, if you could give us a a small um, explainer on what social identity is, social identity theory um, and how it applies to the film. Yeah. So social identity theory um, really simply is, you know, how we understand our sense of self, but specifically within the context of our group memberships. So we can think about our social 
you know, like our social identities, right? So, you know, identifying, um, you know, gender, race, ethnicity, et cetera. But we can also think about groups, you know, our, our groups that we belong to. So, um, you know, you and I are talking as psychologists, that's a group that we identify and are a part of as a part of our larger sense of self and our identity, but it's a group. Mm -hmm. And so, but a part of that, right, is that we then categorize what groups do we belong to our in groups and what groups do we not belong to our out groups and unfortunately groups that we don't belong to we tend to kind of view within this lens of you know stereotypes and these generalizations because we're not a part of them we don't know um much about them because again we're not a part of that group and so we see this throughout the film where there's kind of some of these group dynamics and how they inform the identities of the main characters throughout the film um, and so one of the examples I know I talked about was Red and his friends in the beginning, beginning of the film, Andy and the new inmates arrive to the prison. And there's this whole scene of them saying, okay, who are you going to take bets on? And they you know, <laughs> bet over cigarettes and they call them fresh fish, that these are the mm -hmm. new inmates and someone's going to, you know, crack the first night. They're going to get really upset and, you know, not do well their first night. And Red, in initial perception of Andy, so he says, is him, that guy. He looks terrible. That tall drink of water there. Yeah, it's him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> and so, but he's wrong because Andy doesn't crack. It's someone else. And Andy came to Shawshank Prison in early 1947 for murdering his wife and the fella she was banging. On the outside, he'd been vice president of a large Portland bank. Good work for a man as young as he was. Smoke's a coin. Better's choice. Smoke's. Put me down for two. All right, who's your horse? That little sack of shit. Eight. Eight from the front. He'll be first. Oh, bullshit. I'll take that action. Yeah, me too. You're out some smoke, son. Let me tell you. Well, Haywood, you're so smart, you call it. I'll take the chubby fat ass there, the fifth one from the front. Put me down for quarter deck. I must admit, I didn't think much of Andy the first time I laid eyes on him. Looked like a stiff breeze would blow him over. That was my first impression of the man. What do you say, Red? A tall drink of water with a silver spoon up his ass. That guy? Never happened. Ten cigarettes. That's a rich bet. All right, who's going to prove me wrong? Haywood? <laughs> Digger? <laughs> Steve? Floyd? <laughs> Four brave souls. Um, but then again, we see that with the inmates, but we also see that with the guards where the, you know, the guards very much, obviously, and we see, you know, this happens in prison settings even today where there's this, you know, delineation of, okay, I, this is my role. This is your role within this larger kind of system. And in this film, you know, guards like Hadley use this as an opportunity to kind of dehumanize and commit abuse against the inmates. And so an example, you know, in that first scene with the, the new, the new fish, the fresh fish, one of them, um, you know, this um, younger man, this young man is crying. He wants his mom. He's upset. He's in prison and Hadley beats him to death. And it's actually, it's a really um, hard scene to watch because, you know, 
everyone in the prison stops talking. They, they're, you know, they, they expected Hadley to, you know, they, they tell him to shut up. They tell him, stop talking. He's going to come beat you up essentially. But then Hadley does beat him to death. And so um, that's another, again, it's a, it's a character we don't really know throughout the film. It's a smaller death, but it is one that occurs. And, and even Hadley almost throwing Andy off of the plate factory roof, right. And that, you know, these, all these smaller bits, that's, those are bigger pieces, but there's smaller bits throughout the entire film where we see this, you know, this juxtaposition between the guards and the inmates and that you are this, I am that. And, you know, the warden does that so much with Andy. I am better than you simply because I'm in this position of power that you are not in. So. Yeah. Now who's being obtuse yeah. is what the warden says. Oh, like, yeah. What? What did you call me? It's like full on uh, uh, shop owner from Frozen. What did you call me? Like, oh, my God. Call somebody obtuse next time. Whoa, boy. You're going to get in trouble. You're going to get sent to solitary. Yeah. I mean, the 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 whole guards versus uh, inmates thing is it was really interesting. Um, us versus them thing, as you mentioned, uh, because in my mind. um. Andy bridges that so well because he is an inmate, right? And he has to fraternize with the other inmates. He has to. That's his role. But because he's an educated man, he can appeal to the needs and the status of guards who obviously feel mightier and higher than the inmates because they get to go home at night or whatever or you know at the end of their shift and whatnot so but but andy does this thing where he can go back and forth between the two because of his skill set and i think he expertly understands that um as soon as he gets to the prison he figures out that there are cracks in this us versus them that he could he can manipulate and he he figures the warden to be a hypocritical uh god-fearing person because he's like well i'm under uh i'll uh, launder money for you sound good bud jesus will love that <laughs> <laughs> agreed and i think about even the scene where when andy um they get all the records in, he takes the opera record like even the guards like yeah you take care of this like he just leaves him to his own devices, essentially. Yeah. Because yeah, he's... I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go drop a <laughs> yeah. loaf or something. Like that. Exactly. <sighs> I'm gonna do that. I'll be back, and just leaves him though. So then Andy takes advantage of that in that moment, and so um, because of his ability to be in those spaces, because he's like you said, he's bridged that gap. Yeah. Okay. So we are going to take a quick break here and we'll come back with more psychology. Stay tuned for that. Howdy. Thanks for listening to this episode. We hope you're enjoying the conversation. Over the past two years, the podcast has grown and that's mostly in part to folks like you, the listeners. We've also had Wonderful luck receiving support from the Society for the Teaching of Psychology, APA Division II Small Partnerships Grant. It's been a fun ride, and we want to keep it going. So we need your help. There are several ways that you can support this show. You can share episodes with your social media networks so we can grab new listeners. 
You can join our fledgling Patreon program. You can contribute directly using PayPal. Or you can purchase some sweet merchandise with our logo at our Spreadshirt merch store. All of those things can be found on the website cinemasychpod.swansike.com. But perhaps the best thing that you can do is to keep listening and leave us feedback on Facebook or Twitter so we know you've listened. Thanks. And now back to the show. And we are back with Dr. Justine Egan Kunicki talking about the Shawshank Redemption, a really good film, top 10 in our hearts for sure. Justine even said like number one. So, you know, fight us if you think that um, if you think that's wrong. But in any case, we have a, a few, a couple more um, psych concepts that sort of really jump out at us. And and one of those that, Justine, you spotted in the film, which obviously looms large across the whole film, is the uh, connection that Andy and uh, Red have. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so, I mean, from the beginning of the film, you know, Red's, we talked about how Red is the narrator and mm-hmm. he at different points talks about his friendship with Andy and there's these different scenes where we get in, insight into how their friendship has developed and changed throughout the years that, you know, the 19 years that Andy is in, is imprisoned at Shawshank. And so, you know, their first meeting, right, is in the prison yard and Red, as we talked about, Red asked, um, Andy asked Red to get him the rock hammer. But what I think... I think this is really because he's like, Red is like, it's going to be too big. This is, you know, what what is this guy even talking about, basically? And Red sees how small this rock hammer is and he laughs. And it's almost like their first inside joke where he's like, oh, all right. Because he didn't have the kind of best impression of Andy initially. He bet that, you know, Andy was going to crack, you know, that first night. And in reality, once he becomes actually acquainted with him about a month um, after Andy's in the prison, he he realizes he's like, I like this guy because then I think because Andy was kind of a you know straight shooter. He he said, This is what I need. I'm I'm not gonna put it in someone else's head or anything, but this is, you know, I wanna I did this in my old life. I wanna do it here. And and I and Red immediately took to him in that way. Yeah, I think it was um I think Red may have been looking for something to break the monotony you know what i mean like he saw this chance to um befriend uh someone different somebody who might break red out of the whole institutionalized mindset he does he, he eventually does i don't think while they're at shawshank but he eventually does for sure. I think the you get the first um, bits of it when he realizes that um, uh, you know he probably used the rock hammer to make that tunnel um, in that famous famous shot of uh, looking out through the tunnel and you've got the warden, you've got Morgan Freeman peeking his head, and then you have Hadley coming around the side. It's a great scene. Uh, great, great shot. Um, but, uh, you know, he sees that little bit 
there at the end. And as soon as he gets pardoned and he goes and, and follows the instructions, of course. But just that first scene, it's it's he was looking for something. I th- I think he was that that's that's my read on it, that he was looking for something and he found it. He found it with Andy and he and he realized over those 19 years that Andy was uh, a stand up person. And I'm thinking. I'm thinking that um, he eventually believed Andy in his profession of his innocence about the crime, you know? Oh, yeah, I think so. And I, I I think to your point about him looking for something different, I think that is really indicated when he points out how different Andy walks through the prison yard, that first meeting. He's like, he walks different. He walks like he's strolling through, you know, a park. and. Red was curious, really, right? He was curious yeah. about him. He wanted to learn more about him. So I, yeah, I agree with that point for sure. So how do we make friends, Justine? Yeah. How do we make friends? If we, if we call Andy and Red friends, they met. We get to see their friendship bloom. We get to see some semblance of closure for that friendship. How did those two become friends? Yeah, so there's a there's a lot of different theories and in, in the attraction literature. Why are you know, because sometimes when we think about attraction, people think romantic attraction and it's important sure. to distinct be, distinguish between that attraction can also mean friendship, right? Why are we why do we want to be around the people we like? And in this case, you know, proximity is one of those things. In this case, we're near the person, but more moreover, we're actually encountering and crossing paths with that person. We call that functional distance. And so yeah. the more we encounter someone, we cross paths with them again and again, we're we're more likely to like them because we become more become more familiar with them. So that piece of becoming more familiar is, you know, as a John's point of mere exposure effect that we tend to like sure. new things we encounter after we've been exposed to them multiple times. And in this case, we get this, you know, it's implied Red and Andy hang out after this first meeting. We see them eating together. We see them playing chess and checkers and different things throughout the different scenes of the movie. And so, you know, we assume that they're pretty continually um, encountering and hanging out with each other is what I would say. And so it's why we're more likely to be friends with people that we have like a class with or people or we, you know, my I met my husband in grad school. You know, we're man mm-hmm. married, so, you know, and so I, you know, <laughs> that we cross those kind of paths with people. Um, I always I give two examples when I teach about this in social psych is my husband and how we met in grad school. We took classes together and then I talk about my best friend who we've been friends almost 20 years and we met in sixth grade and we had the mm-hmm. same like locker space area. And that's how we became acquainted. And so mm-hmm. because we were continually in that same space, we got to know each other. And so in this case, Red and Andy, that kind of continual exposure is really what fostered that liking, um, partly, right? And so, yeah, you know, there's other pieces for them, right? It's they also, you know, they confide in each other, they help each other. And so, you know, another kind of piece of attraction theory is that reward theory of attraction that we, we come to like people if we associate them with positive feelings and rewards. And so in this case, you know, they do things for each other. Red, you know, gets his entire crew to gather a bunch of rocks for Andy after he's hospitalized. And, you know, he gets Andy, um, Andy helps Red get a job in the library, at least part of the time when, you know, uh, he starts doing taxes for 
everyone in the prison. And so and outside of the prison, and out of the prison. Oh, yeah, seriously. <laughs> yeah. You know, and so they do these different things for each other, but they also share parts of themselves. Right. And so um, there's this whole self-disclosure piece and um, specifically reciprocal self-disclosure, I think, is important to note. So the difference is, you know, self-disclosure is I'm going to share a part of myself with you and that could be, you know, anything I choose to share. But reciprocal is, hey, I'm going to share something and you're going to share something in kind. And so, you know, Red eventually, but he doesn't ask him that first time they meet, hey, what are you in for? What did you do? Because you don't yeah. ask someone the first time you meet them. I like to give this example my, with my students of like, you don't go on a first date and go, let me tell you my deepest and darkest secrets. Like, no, <laughs> that's weird. You're going to say, hey, I do you have any siblings? And, you know, you're going to do the kind of basic things on that first date. And so, in this case, you know, Red eventually does ask Andy what he's in for. Andy reminds him that he's innocent. Red discloses that he's in for murder, right? And they share these parts of themselves. And eventually, you know, when Andy reaches that tipping point of wanting to escape, he discloses the location of where he plans to go. So watch Neho and ask Red to join him um, when he gets out because their relationship, their friendship has spanned these years of time. And. And I'll add to that, he is the only, I shouldn't use pronouns, um, Red is the only person Andy tells about the fake person that is going to take the fall for all the money laundering. <laughs> the fake person that you can create just by mail. Imagine, I, I really want to know if that was true, if you could do that <laughs> in the mid, mid 20th century. It's I amazing the things you well. could do by jail. Dot by mail. <laughs> oh my gosh! Um, I, I, my, the uh, cold open is a fun joke about that one. I hope you enjoyed that, listeners. But yeah, I was like, hmm. And honestly, he's the only soul that knows it, other than Andy himself, of course. And that's an interesting thing to disclose, right? That and uh, and if, I think Red sort of internalizes that when they are talking about, um, you know, what they're actually at Shawshank for and Andy saying, you know, I didn't actually do it. And but Red did actually do his crime. And um, you could probably assume that uh, because Red was black, they threw the book at him. Which is why, I mean, I can imagine, this is just in me in my own head, but I can imagine that um, Red probably murdered some uh, probable, uh, probably white person for something that that white person was doing that was infringing upon, you know, Red being just a normal Joe, right? Probably some sort of um, Jim Crow racist things. I know it was Maine, but still. Um, and Red probably got angry, crime of passion, murdered this person, uh, and knew he did. And they threw the book at him because the person was white and Red was black. That's my read of it. Of course, this is, you know, probably Red did this in the 1930s, I would imagine. I'm not, I mean, and, um, you know, cause we, we don't see Red until 1947, um, but he had already been in, I think, 10 years at that point. Right. So, yeah. So it's yeah. like 1930s. Yeah. So that's a fair estimate. Yeah. So that's how I read that. And he is fully aware of why he is in um, prison. And we get the sense 
of that even in the first scene because we actually introduced to Red first. We're introduced to Red at his parole meeting in 1947. And it it um I guess he was coming up for parole um because of 10 years. Yeah, so that that makes sense. Um and they rejected his parole because they didn't believe that he was re- re- rehabilitated even though he probably was. He probably knew why he was there, what he was there for, um, uh, what it means to have done that versus, you know, not doing that. And then what we would do after getting out of prison, that sort of thing. But of course, by 10 years in, he was already for sort of feeling institutionalized. Right. So I feel like that situation of reciprocal self-disclosure really drives their friendship even closer. And that's what leads to um, Andy disclosing, going, going where, telling him about the tree and the the in the wheat field next to the stone wall, blah blah blah. Like, if, I don't think if they if they didn't have that moment together, plus a few other moments, then I don't know if Andy would have said that to him at the end. Oh, I agree, and I think. What is a really interesting, I just thought about this and I I didn't have it in the notes, but I just thought that there's a scene when Tommy first gets into the prison and Tommy's trying to be the cool kid on the block. And he's talking about his breaking and entering. um, And Andy, uh, Andy's like, you know, messing with him or something. And, and he goes, what do you know, Capone? And, and what are you in for? And Andy goes, don't you know, I'm innocent. And he doesn't actually talk about his real, like what actually, you know, happened. And so really the only scene where we see that happen is with Red. And so that difference of how he shares about his experience and why he's there is really only was only kind of at least within the context of the film shared with Red. And I just think, yeah, everyone knew he was in for murder and that's well known. He's the banker who killed his wife. However, in that scene where he's like, I'm innocent, really Red is the only one that we see gets that kind of knowledge in that honest way. So I think that even kind of more kind of gives credence to how their friendship develops. Yeah. I, and, and you have a quote here. I think I'll play the, the clip of, of Red saying, you know, sometimes it makes me sad though, Andy being gone. And I, I, again, I don't know if Red would have said that had he not had this t- almost 20 years of connection with this um, really interesting person. And I think the thing that makes him really interesting is our next topic, which is that Andy, for all the unluckiness, he even says that perhaps he was unlucky, uh, for all of Andy's um, lack of luck, he's still a very hopeful person. He goes from moment to moment, from scene to scene, as as we keep getting time progressing, um, we see his hope really unwavering, even spending two months in solitary confinement. Um, and so, Justine, I kind of want to get your take on this this idea of hope and its counterpart, resilience. Yeah, I mean, so you already kind of got to this point that where, you know, Andy is always kind of desiring for more, right? He's always like, I don't know, he has like a brighter light as like Red says at one point, right? But I think that's a really good way to put it throughout the film where he's hope, he's like looking to the future still, 
which a lot of the inmates, especially those who were there longer, are not. And again, because of that, I think he's able to rebound and come back from the struggles and the stress and adversity that he has to deal with. And so that's this idea of resilience, right? Our ability to kind of come back. And there's a lot of definitions in the literature. And I, within the context of this podcast, we won't get into that. But, you know, we can think about this in this case of that, you know, being resilient doesn't mean that stressful things won't happen to you, right? Stressful things happen to everyone, but we can come back from that. And how we do that is so important. And so Andy throughout the film shows that time and time again of how he, again, he carves out these sen- this sense of humanity in spite of all of these struggles and abuses that he suffers. Yeah, I mean, you know, he, as you, as you, uh, as some of the examples that we've talked about uh, in this episode, he write writing the letters to the folks in the legislature to get the the more books to enrich the lives of the uh, inmates that he saw were essentially wallowing, you know, helping uh, inmates get their GEDs. Tommy included, he gets a C plus average, he gets his GED, you know, C's get degrees, of course. <laughs> um, and, and, uh, you know, he, he gets guards under his, he, he keeps 35 grand, which is a lot of money in the 1940s with, uh, Hadley. Um, even though God dude doesn't deserve it. I just, you know, after you said that after I, for some reason, I guess I blocked the first guy's. Um, beaten to death out of my mind but you know Hadley kills two of the three deaths in the movie and the, the other one is suicide so like Hadley kills the two other people that die in the movie uh, yeah. not a nice man does not deserve 35,000 wish the government had taken 75% as they probably would have in that time it's alright Hadley gets his own when he gets arrested in the end so it's it's fine. yeah that's true that's true everyone everyone gets um, <laughs> screwed over of course but you know he probably had already spent that $35,000 uh, and he wanted to murder um uh Andy for even uh speaking up and saying, well, I do you trust your wife? <laughs> what a weird way to um to broach that, you know, to to yeah, to to start a conversation with somebody who will have no remorse throwing you off the roof. But, you know, it's great. I think he, he could have said, "Hey, I can help you with that." Right though, right? Like it's like yeah. it's to get his anger and then he and then I think that was what it was, right? Like to get his attention and again from a theatrical standpoint, then you get the dramatic almost throwing him off the building, but he doesn't yeah, actually get very, thrown off yeah, the building. Yeah, I know. So, from a writing Narratively, standpoint, dramatically. Yeah, it, it fits. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I mean, he he the last conversation he has with Red in the prison after he gets out of solitary confinement, he is still hopeful after spending two months, 60 some days by himself. Uh, not talking to anybody. Uh, very rarely, you know, it, like the guards aren't meant to say anything to him, even though that one guard tells him how um, Tommy does on his uh, uh, on his his GED test. You know, he's still he's still telling Red, like, we got to I, I got to do something. I either I either do this now or I'll never do it. You know, I need to 
I need to continue living or I get busy dying or something like that, right? Yep. Get busy living or get busy dying. Yep. Um, so, you know, he, he, he still remained hopeful in that. And you still sort of have the... <sighs> Uh, the more cynical, I, I don't know if I want to call Red completely cynical at that point, because I think he was actually, too, getting slightly more hopeful. But he was still the realist in there. Like, what are you talking about, man? Your chances of getting out of here are gone. What are you talking about? He needs about? to come to There's, accept that, basically, is yeah. what he tells him. He's like, and he gets upset with him. Like, you need to come to terms, like, basically come to terms with that. And I think that's and even in the scene which we talked about with, you know, after Andy plays the opera music and he gets put in solitary. This is the different one from Tommy. But, um, you know, Andy's talking about the power of music and he's like, haven't you ever had something for your heart? You know, that that they can't take away. Like, I love that that whole just language there. Like there's something inside that they can't take away from you. And that's important. and you know, that's hope. And literally Red's like, no, that's, that's not, that's going to be harmful to you. So essentially that this hope is harmful. And, you know, and I think for Red, um, Red, it's, it's frustrating because I think to a certain extent, he gave up hope at a time. Andy helped, maybe helped renew some of that right towards the end of the film. But for a long time, he, he probably gave up a little bit and said, this is what it is. I'm not, I'm not going to get paroled and I'm here and this is my life. And, you know, Andy ne just never accepted that in the same way. Dear Red, if you're reading this, you've gotten out. And if you've come this far, maybe you're willing to come a little further. You remember the name of the town, don't you? Say what to nail. I could use a good man to help me get my project on wheels. I'll keep an eye out for you, and the chessboard ready. Remember, Red, hope is a good thing, maybe the best of things, and no good thing ever dies. I will be hoping that this letter finds you, and finds you well. Your friend, Andy. Get busy living, or get busy dying. That's goddamn right. For the second time in my life, I'm guilty of committing a crime. A role violation. Of course, I doubt they'll toss up any roadblocks for that. Not for an old crook like me. Fourteen got Texas, please. I find I'm so excited I can barely sit still or hold a thought in my head. I think it's the excitement only a free man can feel. A free man at the start of a long journey whose conclusion is uncertain. I hope I can make it across the border. I hope to see my friend and shake his hand. I hope the Pacific is as blue as it has been in my dreams. I hope. Yeah, uh, I, I think Andy 
had visions of moving beyond Shawshank, even at the start, especially that first time that he realized that the um, the prison was built very shoddily, right? Like he knew that if he just bought his time, he was going to be able to do something with that. He was going to be able to realize because he probably knew the night that he escaped because he had created the entire hole that those were the sewer pipes, right? Like he had planned this out meticulously over 19 years and his, and that's what made his hope never waver. And um, realizing that the warden was going to have him under his thumb his entire life if he stayed there. Um, with the whole killing of Tommy and um, the making making him do these shining shoe uh, uh, tasks and the money laundering and all of that stuff, he was like, "I got, I, I, I got to do something about this." And but because Red didn't know anything about any of that stuff, he was still living his in- institutionalized realism. But I do like your point about the music and the the dialogue surrounding the music because, you know, the the a common refrain about prison that I've heard is that it's very easy to become a number. Right. And every prisoner is given their number. And you actually hear this also from. Holocaust survivors who literally had their numbers tattooed on their arms, right? Not just a jumpsuit, but on their arms. And so if you become a number, if you become part of that institution, you are going to lose hope. And that is going to be damaging because you're just going to end up um, dying your last days in within four walls. What I and then in. I hear your point. And then I just thought about that scene again. And that what I think is I laughed because I laugh every time with that scene, not the whole piece of Andy talking about hope. But prior to that, when one of the other inmates looks at Andy go and goes, they let you bring the recorder down there. (laughs) (laughs) And he's like, no, (laughs) I had it in my heart. And I just it's and it's it's meant to serve as like a kind of comedic levity there. Right. So a point of levity. But I just I, I laugh and I think it's serving its point because you're like, no, he obviously did not have the recorder down there, friend. <laughs> yeah. Come on, dude. It's like you've been here long enough. No, <laughs> you, you know, that wasn't happening. <laughs> exactly. So on that piece of levity, um. I like to end my discussions with my uh, with my guest hosts uh, with favorite scenes could be anything. Um, It could be uh, I try for lightheartedness, but, you know, you can do whatever you'd like, whatever your favorite scene is. Justine, go. Ooh, there's two. Can I pick two? I'm going to tell you two. (laughs) No, yeah. So I think you'll have to rank them, though. Yeah, fair enough. So I'll pick for number one, <laughs> Red's ending monologue about hope when he's traveling okay. to meet up with Andy, right? And it's the whole, I think it's the excitement only a free man can feel. He's on the bus and you just, I don't know that I, I tear up every time I watch that scene, especially, and you, you know, you won't be able to convey this in a podcast form, but I, I, when he actually sees Andy and he sees his friend again, you're just like, 
your heart like soars. I mean, you're just like, yes, they did it. And that, you know, despite everything that took place, they, you know, they're, they're, the friends are together again and you feel happy in that moment at that. And, and it's a great way to end the film because in the, in Stephen King's book, he doesn't actually, he leaves it open-ended as to, yeah. and with Red Good. So I actually love that they close it with them seeing each other. Cause I just think that's, that's really beautiful. Um, yeah. I think that goes with um, how Frank Darabont likes to to write narratives. Mm. Um, he doesn't want to. He doesn't leave them too wide open. You see this um, quite a bit with uh, how he did the first season of The Walking Dead, because it honestly could be con- a, con- a, a self contained miniseries. That's a good point. Uh, that, I haven't that, watched that, that first so season. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because it, it ends with um, it ends with the CDC guy saying, uh, you know, telling Rick something. Right. And he's like, oh, and we don't know what he tells Rick. But we can assume that it's not good. Yeah. So that's the closure there. And, and that's why I love the first season of Walking Dead so much. And it just got ruined as time went on, which is sad. I stopped watching it because it got ruined. as time went on. <laughs> yeah, same, same, same. I just couldn't stick with it. Um, my favorite, my favorite scene um, is probably when Brooks has the bird in his pocket because what I think Andy has a maggot in his food, and he's like, "Oh," as one would, and uh, Brooks is like, "Oh, let me have it," and you're like. Why does this old man want this maggot? And then he opens his coat pocket and there's a little crow chicken there. And he feeds him the maggot. Oh, Jake. Jake like, the bird. <laughs> Jake the Yeah. And you know, it it's it's always heartbreaking, of course. It's and and the metaphor, obviously, of of prison itself, which is um caged birds, right? Nope. Birds aren't meant to be caged and they're meant to fly free and um, we get that literally and figuratively in the movie because Jake has to be set free because Brooks is getting paroled. And then, of course, Andy is the bird that's flown. Yeah. <laughs> it's yes. the uh, this bird has flown guy. Well, I want to thank Dr. Justine Egan Kunicki for coming on and talking with me about the Shawshank Redemption. Uh, when uh, when we say goodbye, Justine, just let us know if there's anything that you'd like to plug. What are you up to these days? Where can people find, uh, find out about you? Uh, maybe follow on Twitter or something like that. Yeah, nothing in particular to plug, but feel free to follow me on Twitter um, at Dr. Egan Kanicki um, if you want to follow me. And I don't really use it too much, but I'm trying to use it more. So feel free to follow and trying to use it more. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> well, I think your husband uses it more than you do. He you? does. He does. Yeah. You need to, you need to catch up, apparently. apparently. Well, thanks again for coming on and chatting with me. Thank you for having me. And until the next episode, listeners, thanks for listening.